Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we celebrate stories of resilience. Today is really exciting. We have Ann Cody, who was a wheelchair racer. She has done a wide variety of different things. We're going to get into that. She's at the State Department now as a special advisor uh, for international uh, disability rights, which, which is pretty cool. I'm going to, if you don't mind, Anne, I am going to read some of the awards, though, which, which are pretty, this will give you a sense of, of who she is and what she has done. So the Franklin Award, U.S. Uh, Department of State for Superior Performance, Innovation and Teamwork 2020, Doctor of Humane Letters, State University of New York at Cortland, Paralympic Order, which is the highest order, highest award you can receive in the Paralympic community from the International Paralympic Committee. George M. Steinbrenner III, Sport Leadership Award from the U.S. Uh, Olympic Foundation, Humanitarian of the Year Award, University of Illinois, Alumni Association, uh, U.S. Paralympics International Leader Award, National Administrator of the Year, National Council of Youth Sports, Distinguished Alumni Award, University of Illinois, uh, College of Applied Health Sciences, uh, Spirit of Sport Award, General Association of International Sports Federations, Congressional Award, National Consortium for Physical Education and Recreation for Individuals with Disabilities, uh, U.S. Wheelchair Sports Hall of Fame, 1992 U.S. Paralympic Team in Athletics, 4x100 Relay, uh, Gold Medalist, and world record 10,000 bronze medalists. So going from 100 meters to 10,000 meters. Uh, USA Track and Field Disabled Athlete of the Year in 1990. Wheelchair Sports USA Athlete of the Year 1990. 1988 US Paralympic Team Athletics. Uh, silver medalist 800, 1500, 5,000, 10,000. Uh, 1988 Seoul Olympic Games, Paralympic 800 demonstration event, sixth place. And 1984 U.S. Paralympic team wheelchair basketball. So not only wheelchair racing, but basketball as well. And thank you so much for joining us. I hope I didn't embarrass you too much by reading your awards. A little. A little. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you sent them to us. You know, I mean, you gave yeah. me you gave me ample opportunity, and they are super impressive to go from being a two-time Paralympian, multiple medalist. To, to the State Department and, and award-winning at the State Department. The first question as I was reading your CV was how does someone go from a bachelor's in art and design to the State Department? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's a very unusual, I'm a very unusual uh, <laughs> coworker. But really the State Department and the work that I do there is kind of my second career. Um, I never really had an arts career, although I started out as a graphic artist. But sports has always been my passion, um, main interest, um, thing that I always come back to. So that's really what led me to the State Department. You know, to make a long story short, that's how I got there. Um, and then I went from the sports diplomacy division over to the Human Rights Bureau. Um, so. Why are sports so appealing? I mean, why were sports so appealing to you as an individual, but also as a vehicle? It sounds like that's what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to, um, you know, when I was, gosh, when I was in elementary school, and Title IX was enacted. And of course, I wasn't aware of that and what was happening with that. All I knew so describe was- Describe Title IX though, please. Sure, Title IX of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act um, states that all um, students will be treated equally in education and in, in, in curriculum, in extracurricular activities, in the whole spectrum, right, of services um, in our public education system. So that meant girls and young women in the school systems um, were to be treated equally and have equal access to all of the different um, curriculum 
you know, whether it was college-based or um, technical training-based, but also extracurricular sports. And um, some very smart people made sure that they helped write the regulations that are written after a law is enacted, usually a number of years um, after enactment, regulations are written. And so the regulations around Title IX in sports are very specific about um, ensuring that girls and young women have equal access to co quality coaches, quality facilities, um, equipment, uniforms, and all those things. And, and yeah, there's a long list. So that's what enabled us to have opportunities, even in elementary school, after school sports programs. Um, we had to be allowed to participate in Little League um, and all you know, all other programs that were happening. So it was a really neat time. And for me, I was new to the school and new to the community and sports. And I was pretty good at sports, I guess, cause I just love movement and I was always active and that stuff came naturally to me. So that was a way for me to really, um, you know, kind of work my way in. And um, also I felt, I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed learning new skills and, and using them and, and growing and developing. Um, so that's, I guess, kind of why sports is important to me. It's been a really important tool. Now, were you, you, were, were you, were you in a wheelchair in elementary school? No. No, not till I was 16. Okay, okay. Which then changes it as well. So Title IX, male, female, but then Title IX, male, female, disability. Right, which, um, yeah, so really Title IX um, didn't apply so much in my case. So when I was 16, I was a junior in high school and I was playing varsity sports and was looking at um, collegiate sports opportunities. Um, and um, so, what were your sports back then? Um, field hockey. Okay. I think that's my favorite sport. Um, that was before soccer took over the world. Um, volleyball and basketball. We got two sports in the winter um, because of football. And then in the spring, I played softball. Okay. So four sports. Yeah. And um, so my junior year when I um, acquired my disability, I had transverse myelitis um, and it hit me really quickly, like overnight. So, you know, the most important thing for me was to be able to return, to finish what I needed to finish in rehab and return to my high school so I could finish with my class. Cause I didn't, even though I was only a junior, I wanted to make sure that I finished my junior year so I could finish senior year with all of my yeah, classmates. So that was really important. And my high school coach, um, who coached um, field hockey and softball and or basketball, anyway, she coached a number of our sports. She um, did a lot of research because, interestingly, at that time in New York State, um, um, physical education um, university students had to take adapted, physic adapted physical education, like just one, one course. So she remembered, you know, learning about sports that people with disabilities participated in. She went back and did some more specific research, like through old sports and spokes magazines in the library. And um, so she was helping me understand what would be possible and encouraged me to get in the pool, um, to do the weight training, to continue the weight training, because I was doing that in rehab, you know, daily basis. <laughs> what year was this? Um, 1979, 80. So over 1979, that. 80. So things were because because you look at you look at the sports, you look at sports for people with disabilities, and it really it sort of started with the obvious ones, right? Like, yeah. okay, if you have a wheelchair, like let's race. <laughs> uh, that, that seemed like it was relatively simple. I can beat you down the end of the hallway, that kind of thing. And then, then basketball was one that was added pretty soon. You mentioned swimming, which is, which, which is, which is one of those, like as a paraplegic, the first thought of, of swimming is like, why do you want, want to want me to get in the pool? Because I'm going to sink when I get in the pool. I can't, I can't kick. And, 
but but that is is one that works as well. There weren't as many sports then right. as there are now. And you were doing sports, I mean, field hockey, basketball, volleyball, and softball that did not lead you right. to track. Or right. or well, basketball actually was basketball was the, the first one. one. Yeah, it was the only like, yeah, that was the only one that, you know was similar. And that's what I went to the University of Illinois knowing that I was going to have the opportunity to play um, because the track program was waning a little bit at that time. So I was focused on basketball and it's a team sport and that's mostly what I knew, um, you know, from the sports I played growing up. But how um, did you get good enough? You really had like a year to get good enough to then be able to, uh, were you recruited to go to the University of Illinois to play basketball or how did that work? No, I mean, I was literally like under two years having a disability when I landed on campus in August of 81. Uh, you know, I had this clunky chair, all I knew, you know, I jumped into the sports programs. It was wheelchair football right, right away initially. Um, the great thing was Marty Morse, um, the, um, you know, renowned wheelchair racing coach um, for us at Illinois and in the US. Um, he landed there the same year. Now he was, he was transferring because he had started, you know, he, he's older than I am and he had already started his undergraduate work. So he was transferring, but we were there together. So I learned a lot from him about that stuff, but also just jumped right into the wheelchair sports community um, when I landed there. And what an amazing resource and group of people. I mean, they're family to me to this day. It's amazing what, and I think it's because it was such a critical time in my life where I was still trying to grasp. If you think back to your two years post-injury or whatever, you're still trying to figure a lot of things out, or at least I was, <laughs> um, because I lived in a in a rural community in upstate New York, so I didn't have um, other people with disabilities or sports programs or anything to look at. We didn't have the internet, so I was all, I was just like a sponge, soaking it all up, and um, yeah. How did that end up? Because part of it is the is the image that you have of yourself, right? I mean, you 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 have an accident or or for you an, an illness effectively that I mean you went from being a fit, vibrant athlete to all of a sudden not being able to walk. Mm -hmm. I mean, that must have been one of those where what is going on? Like how and and is it going to continue? Is it going to come back? You know, yeah. am I going to, you know, am I going to be able to walk and run again or, or not, which is, which is a huge deal. Yeah. But I would imagine that the, that sport was something that sort of helped you to regain your sense of, of identity. Yeah. And what was the community like when you, because Illinois, and maybe you can back up just a little bit and talk about mm -hmm. some of the history of the University of Illinois too. Sure, and that's one of the things when I got there that I had to find out. So one of my first papers, like in rhetoric in writing class or something, that's what I did. I researched the, you know, the history of the Illinois program in wheelchair sports because I didn't know any of it. Um, it was fascinating. So I, I um, again, I landed at Illinois in 1988, and the program started um, in 1948. <laughs> for veterans of World War II who had spinal cord injuries and other mobility-related disabilities. Um, and the focus was on um, providing a, a place where they could use their GI Bill because nothing was accessible. No, you know, no campuses or universities were, so they weren't able to go anywhere. So, um, and as part of that um, effort, uh, sports, Pro, sports programming was developed as well um, as, you know, as part of their extracurricular activities, um, but also helping them adapt and get stronger and, you know, have more endurance because it's a big campus and 
um, <laughs> you know, you need to be you need to be in good shape to hold a full schedule of classes. To make it to class, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So, what was what was the community like when you got there? And you're there. I mean, is this like fifty pound stainless steel wheelchair that you're arriving in? Pretty much. Yeah, it wasn't even a good one. It was a cheap one because I had an Everston Jennings that I completely destroyed in less than two years because I was, I mean, I was riding all over. I, I just was, yeah. <laughs> I was very active and didn't really pay close attention to my chair, except anyway, um, I abused it a little bit. So yeah, and everybody laughed at me and made fun of me <laughs> when I got to Illinois with my with my kind of generic brand chair. <laughs> Where did you get that? What is what is that even? What, what brand is that? <laughs> so yeah, so I, um, so it was all in good fun though, obviously. <laughs> I, um, uh, so when I landed there, when I arrived there, you know, there were Paralympians and Paralympic coaches, um, there who I could talk to and learn from. And, um, and there were other women with disabilities who were my age and, and or who had, you know, who were similarly new, newly disabled or at least still, you know, going through the same kind of um, experiences as a young adult with a disability. Um, so we, you know, I hung out with my um, my friends that I met through the dorms too. I had a group of friends, you know, from just generally from class and from the dorms. But my sports buddies were so much fun. I mean, after um, the best once the basketball season started, we had practice um, every other day, and and we had obviously tournaments that we traveled to regularly during the season. Um, so that meant that we had to um, study and keep up with our coursework while we were traveling and um, playing tournaments and stuff. But we got to know each other really well. We roomed together in, you know, in, in our tournament travels and then our racing travels too, um, when I started doing that. Um, but it was just an important, you know, for me, it was, it was, a, it was an important um, community um, that I think really helped me adapt in ways that I wouldn't have you know, if it was just me, kind of, you know. Um, in what do you mean by that specifically? How did how did they help you to adapt? I think I had. Okay, yeah, that's a good question. The um, the high expectations. The you know, finally, people were giving me signals and messages about what's possible and what I could still do and accomplish. Cause that's what I wanted. You know, I didn't, I wanted to, you know, I knew I wanted to graduate with my class so that I could go to university so that I could, you know, keep moving forward. Um, but the messages and signals that I was getting from medical, you know, like hospital personnel and other people who just didn't know and had stereotypes about people with disabilities that they were, you know, <laughs> dropping in my lap all the time because they didn't know how to, uh, yeah, they didn't know how to interact. So you just be shut in and that, that, that would kind of be the rest of your life. Is that what the message you were getting? Well, it was, you know, there just weren't as high expectations. Right, okay. So I, even from, I mean, I'm not saying that came from my family because it didn't. They have supported me um, wholeheartedly my whole life. They've, they've been wonderful and fantastic. Um, but uh, for, for instance, the vocational rehabilitation counselor that I was assigned when I was still in high school getting ready for, you know, after high school um, suggested that because I liked art that I could go and get CAD training. That's mm -hmm. the, um, the at that time, CAD training was design or something like that yeah 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 it was being able to do those CAD drawings for I guess for architecture and um, construction and other I don't know what industries anymore but it was like a six-month training at a technical institute and I said no I'm I'm going to the I'm going to college that's what I have planned to do that's what I 
you know, that's why I work so hard in my, you know, school curriculum and taking all these regents exams. I'm going to college, so um, yeah. Did you choose the University of Illinois because it had a sports program? Or, yeah. or did it sort of, okay, it wasn't just coincidental that you ended up there. Right, so what I did was I visited some campuses. I visited Cornell University, I visited Syracuse University, and then a number of other SUNY schools. Mm -hmm. um, and the accessibility, there was like very limited accessibility and not really much at all. And all those campuses are on hills, very hilly terrain. And so I knew in the wintertime that was gonna be really challenging. And again, I was two years, not less than two years when I was looking at schools into having a disability. And so it really looked um, impossible. But well, I started writing. Then. You didn't know anything, really. I mean, two yeah. years into it, you, especially on your own, because you were probably the only person sort of in a wheelchair. You didn't really have peers. Like, right. you don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> Except I want to go to the university. So I wrote letters. Um, my mom is a nurse, retired, and so some of the doctors that she worked with said, I've heard about, I've heard that Illinois has a program, um, and I, we also heard something about North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and, Calif and um, University of California. So I write to all these places and ask specifically about that and if they could send me materials, and the only place that wrote back was the University of Illinois. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. And, that, and so I'm really thankful they did because there really wasn't a lot happening at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. That's where Brad Hedrick, my coach at Illinois, actually came from. You know, he did his undergraduate work there. Um, and there was a men's basketball program, but not much else for, you know. So anyway, so yeah, it was great. You played basketball, but then but then quickly moved into, into racing. How did, how did that happen? Or, or maybe it wasn't quickly, the wheelchair racing. How did you get into it? Yeah, that was, um, I blame that on Marty. <laughs> he, he, In the fondest possible way that you blame it on Marty. Yes. Yeah, that's right, that's right. He, um, yeah, he started um, recruiting me or whatever you want to call it, encouraging me to try it from like that first year that I was on campus and he had um, he had me try getting in a, a, a PRC racing wheelchair. And so okay, you're gonna have to describe that one. Uh, so <laughs> um, yeah, PRCs had really fat tubing. Okay. I mean, compared to the tubing that we use now is much wider tubing. Um, it had a canvas um, seat and seat back. Um, it was wide, you know, they, they didn't fit us really like a glove like today. And back then everybody was using chairs and swapping chairs, except some of the, you know, the more elite competitive folks had their own chairs and had them fit more like a glove. But the rest of us just tried to, you know, get our hands on one so we could race. And it was still four wheels then, and it was really yes. looked more like a like a wheelchair, like what you'd see, as opposed to like a racing chair. Yeah, except the handroom was small, and then there was a yeah, your feet were kind of out in front of. There were two um, two handles on the front casters, right, to steer with, but right. they were independent of each other. They didn't have the um, tie rod, so yeah, it was dangerous. I mean, so because you. I don't know if any of you have tried wheelchair racing, but the first time you get in, in one of those chairs, it's really, it's, it's a, it doesn't go any, it doesn't go the direction you want it to. Right. <laughs> and then you try to steer it and, it, and then you, you know, it comes to a stop because you're not pushing it or getting enough momentum. I just didn't, I mean, that was not, those were not the best um, conditions to try it in, but, um, it was, I was not convinced, but I did, I did agree to, um, to, to go to regionals that first year. Um, the regional meets for track and field um, were pretty plentiful back then. There were regional meets like the Midwest and, the, and New England and Mid-Atlantic and other parts of the country had these regional 
meets where you could go and race against other athletes in your classification and um, really try to see if you could meet standards that would qualify you um, to go to nationals, basically. How did how did that first meet go? What, I, I'm sort of interested to hear whether you got hooked that first meet or not. So if I'm remembering right, I went to the New England games because that's where Marty's from. <laughs> I think it was cold and rainy. <laughs> Sounds perfect. Yep. So yeah, not very much fun, but I mean, weather-wise, I was used to it from being an outdoor sport athlete. Um, you know, I got beat by pretty much everybody. <laughs> um, so no. <laughs> I mean, I think my times were good enough to, to qualify me for nationals, which meant I had to go to nationals. <laughs> so you were not hooked at the, you didn't get it and say, this is awesome. This is what I'm going to do. Uh, this is, uh, this is my dream. My dream come true. No, this is like, okay, yeah. now I qualify for nationals and I have to keep going. Yeah, it really, so, and that went on and on and on. Um, and then I, I shouldn't say on and on and on, but I went to nationals and then um, I, I think I lost every race there too. And I was racing in another chair that fit me about as good as that PRC. So that was part of the problem, but not all of it. <laughs> so when did it, when did it all click for you? When did it come together? Cause, see, Cause I mean, looking back on it, I mean, you, uh, I mean, you were you were one of, if not the best. I mean, in 1990, you were the athlete of the year, and sort of yeah, that was Candice Cable and Jean Driscoll, who was your who was your teammate, who might have had a little. They might they both might have had a little bit more fanfare, but you beat both of them fairly consistently as well. Yes, I did eventually. <laughs> What's that? Thank you. Forgive me. That was my year. If only it had been a Paralympic year. Right? Maybe. I don't know. Right. Uh, and yay for high paras too. Well, well, I think that's, yeah, that's part of it, right? Because, because your paralysis is, is higher, meaning that you don't have the torso strength, the balance, the ability to go down, you know, to lean down onto your knees and then sit back up and, put all those big muscles into into the stroke it's more of the you had to you had to be technically really good yeah and put a lot of a lot of rpms when so so i still i want to know when when did it happen when did the light go on that you said okay i'm i'm actually willing to do this i'm not just going to get dragged to races by marty it was when i started doing road races uh, ah and but the light really went on when um, when Sharon and Candace and everybody raced in LA in 84 in the exhibition events, that's when it went on. So women had an 800 meter exhibition event, the men raced the 1500 meter and it was at the Olympics and it was just the finals. It was just, it was eight people on the track, right? And, but, but it was, it was a lot of fanfare though. It was on television, which Paralympics right. went on television. And so, so that was the thing that you said, okay, I want to do that. I want to, I want to be fast like that. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. If I had to point to one thing, that was it. So that was <laughs> yeah. 84. So that was 84. So this was, this was at the beginning of, so, 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 so accident was 79, started school 82. And so this is like your, your end 81. of your sophomore year kind of thing. Oh, 81, right. Okay. Um, oh, sophomore, junior year. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it would have been junior year. Okay. Summer of junior year. Yeah. And I was doing road racing and I love that. And um, Marty, like he does, um, convinced me to do a marathon. <laughs> so I did the Fort Wayne marathon and so that I could qualify for Boston because it's like, there, you can see a pattern, right? With Marty, this is what he does <laughs> to get people hooked on his sport. <laughs> looks like it worked. And obviously he's from Massachusetts too. And, yeah. and but Boston is Boston, right? I mean, Boston, they, they, 
decided they were going to do Boston in 1897, right? was the first year, I think. They came back from the modern Olympics in 1896 and said, hey, we want to do a marathon too. So it is the race in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, besides the Paralympic Games, that is the really the um, creme de la creme of events and at least in my experience. Exactly. So, okay. So, so then you're getting, you're getting faster, but you're still, so, so you spent a fair amount of time at the university of Illinois, right? Because this is toward the end of your undergraduate that you're getting faster. Yeah. And, and you came back and got a master's as well. So how long were you actually at the university of Illinois? 10 years, 10 years, 81 to 91. I worked too. I worked for couple years between um, undergrad and grad school. Okay. But part of it though, too, back then, in order to sort of train with the team, you were supposed to be in school, right? That was, that was part of Marty's thing. How did, how did your relationship with him and your time at the University of Illinois then shape what you were going to do next or what you were going to do professionally? Mm. Yeah, I guess I, I knew that I wanted to take um, what I'd learned and what I knew about myself and apply it to a professional career, right. you know, without necessarily knowing what that was going to, what that looked like, what it was going to be. I wanted to do that because I knew if I did, it would, you know, it would, would be great. <laughs> right. And, and, but some of what I've seen just in, in my experience with the University of Illinois is that there's a, there's a responsibility to the community. Yes. Is that accurate for me to say that? Yes, yes. Yes, I mean, when we were students, we were expected to work at um, tournaments and meets and things that we hosted um, as volunteers or as you know, instructors or whatever whatever it was. And um, I, w- I was a, actually a graduate student. So I had a graduate assistantship when I was in grad school. And one of the projects I worked on was the first Illinois wheelchair sports camp um, that we launched when I was a grad student. So th- that's where we p- invited people to come for a regional meet. Right. And, and like a couple days before the meet, we, all, we, did, we provided information. We had all of our experts, right? Our, um, biomechanics experts, coaches, other, you know, athletes um, talk about their areas of expertise, like um, wheelchair propulsion, making gloves or using gloves, um, all all different kinds of things, shoulder hygiene and um, weight training, strength training. And, you know, we were just, we just wanted to share all the stuff that we were we were using that we found was working. Um, and we had, you know, it was like constant re- research and development for us, right? In the gym with the weight training and, and trying to um, avoid injuries, you know, those common injuries and how, how to do that. And, you know, everybody's an individual, so you have to take that into account as well. But yeah. Yeah, was- but one of the biggest issues for wheelchair for people using wheelchairs is, you know, repetitive, repetitive motion kind of injuries because you're just, you know, you're, you're not walking anymore. So you're using your arms. And then, and then the other part of it is that everything's in, in a pushing motion. And so those small muscles in your back create an instability in your shoulders, which is not a great joint. And so trying to trying to be as efficient as possible and remain healthy, which is ultimately the reason why you're while you're doing the sport, right? The thing is that you're, <laughs> you're, you're doing the sport and you actually, you have a fan right now. Corey McChesney is, uh, is saying hi, Anne, and he hopes you're doing well, so. Uh, that's sweet, thank you. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's really cool because you guys, you guys really were on the cutting edge of, of, of the science of the sport like people started figuring out how to go fast but you were trying to figure out you're you're in an academic setting 
and you're trying to figure out how to do it. And it's so cool that you're sharing, as you were saying that first, uh, that you worked on the, on the first sports camp, I was trying to think, cause I've, I went to that sports camp and uh-huh. I don't know which year I went to. I don't think it would have been as early as 91. Okay. Yeah. That would have been, um, actually 90 or 90. I can't remember. It might've been 91. I'm not sure when the first one was, but yeah, around that time. Yeah, it was probably more 92, 92, 93 kind okay. of for me. And, and uh, yeah, but, but anyway, super cool that you guys were doing that, but also really cool that you had, that you had a sense of, of sharing with the community of, of bringing everybody else up, that it wasn't just about keeping all your information and we will go faster and we will beat up on everybody. And that's too bad for the rest of you. You were, you were trying to bring everybody else up. How did it work when you transitioned from being a student and being a racer to mm-hmm. then the career, which you said has, has taken many twists and turns? <laughs> How did that work? Well, should I, let's see. So I left Illinois and um, my first job after grad school was working at Shepherd Center mm-hmm. in Atlanta, Georgia as the sports and fitness specialist. And one of the top rehabilitation centers, I mean, in the, in the country, right? Right. And um, we got to know them because we raced in the Peachtree Road Race, which is one of the premier wheelchair road races in the country, if not globally. Um, it always draws an international um, field. It's always an exciting race. So, you know, yeah, so it was just a natural um, to be able to do that. And I actually did my um, graduate internship there first. So in the summer of 91, I was, I was in Atlanta doing an internship with Shepherd Center before I then went back about a year later to take a job, to take the job with them. So, um, what was the objective when you left? Because I often tell people that that for me, it was more difficult to retire from competitive sport. Like my identity took a greater blow then than it took when I had my accident. Yeah. Was that similar for you? And what was the objective when you decided that you were going to start a career? And, and did you know what you wanted to do? Did you know where you wanted to go? Did you know what it wanted to, wanted to look like at some point? I did, I did. I mean, I, you know, after undergrad, I couldn't really say that. Um, but I mean, I, I knew that I loved sports and I really needed to get a degree that would enable me to work in sports. So that's why, why I got the degree I did in grads, you know, in my graduate um, program. So I wanted to work in sports. Well, in disability sports, as we called it, wheelchair sports back then. But there weren't there were no paying jobs, you know. <laughs> so I had to figure out. I mean, all the people that I knew were recreation therapists who worked, you know, associated with rehab centers who also did coaching, kind of on, you know, not as part of their regular duties, but. Um, but you know, extracurricular kind of thing, right? Yeah, affiliated with the hospital, you know, so that those programs could run. But um, but they had their day <laughs> job responsibilities with the hospital as well. Um, so um, so anyway, so being at Shepherd and being around all that great energy, because there were lots of really smart, um, successful people working there. Um, Barb Trader being one of them, she was a, was my mentor, and she's a very close friend now to this day. Um, so, uh, well, why I, sport? Why did why did you want to get? Why did you need to go into sport? I you know I kind of go back to when when I was in high school before my disability. That was that was one of the things that I was considering. Really? I didn't really know a lot about, I mean, I didn't want to be a PE teacher, but I knew about athletic trainers and, you know, a little, little bit. It was, so that was, it was an area that I was really interested in because I loved it so much. Um, so, yeah. And then you <laughs> add the disability part. And so then it becomes 
disability sport mm-hmm. where, where there's, you know, it's, in some ways it's kind of like you're just scratching the surface too, right? Where it's like the potential, you'd seen a lot of the potential in Illinois. Were you taking that expertise that you learned as a student, as a racer, as a graduate student and, and applying that and sharing that with, with the people you were working with who in some ways probably were more on the rehab side yeah, they had they had new, right. They had new disabilities, so it was it was a very different approach. Um, but we hosted competitions. We hosted regional tournaments and and Dixie, you know, regional track and field meets and things like that. So I got to put on events and and such. And the '96 Paralympic Games <clears throat> were coming to Atlanta, <laughs> so I wanted to be there in the middle of it, in whatever way I could, um, because I knew it was gonna be amazing. So I put myself in that place um, so I could do that. I wasn't really interested, really big on coaching. Um, And I think, you keep saying why sport and I should go back to this um, response. Because it changes minds. I mean, I think, you know, besides the passion and the joy, um, you know, of doing it, it also helps break down those attitudes um, that, you know, for that I, whom? For wh- whose mind is it changing? It, um, I think it's changing stereotypes about disability. Right. You know, and that's hard, right? Because if you, I mean, that exists everywhere all over the world and that's the biggest barrier no matter if you live in africa or south you know asia or you know north america it's the biggest issue um the stereotypes and the and and where you're you're sort of put in that box and and seen more for the limitation yeah, and, and we're not going to do put laws, we're not going to implement laws to create accessibility because you don't need to go anywhere. You just need to stay home and, you know, be happy with that. Um, so you don't uh, have to go to work, just stay home. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just be invisible so we don't have to think about you. So where did you think that it would be best that how, where, how did you think that you could best affect change? Like where and what kind of a position was this becoming strategic for you? Um, I had real interest in governance, mm-hmm. and um, from 1989 to like 1995, I was involved in USA Track and Field, which had I I don't know if they still do a committee on athletes with disabilities. Um, so really trying to. Um, educate that huge federation or sports you know organization um it was it was like beating my head against the wall frankly um and and at the same time um you would have experiences where there were breakthroughs like with the officials and with the juniors you know that and with the masters i mean some of the different um committees were open and interested in working with our, with our committee and engaging with athletes with disabilities. And the officials, the USA track and field officials, I mean, Barb Chambers was one of the folks who helped lead that effort. And they've been, I mean, so important to Paralympic uh, development in this country, you know, track and road racing. Um, and, and just, that's been wonderful to see. And that's how it should be, right? Across other sports as well. Most, most definitely. And it's interesting that you went to the organizational side of things, the, the leadership side of things where, where you know, the, the people who are, who are making the rules, the people who are, and how was, how was your voice received on those committees? <laughs> Are you having to think back on this or, or are you thinking, oh, this was really, <laughs> really fresh. It's really fresh in my mind. I mean, on the, dis- on the committee on athletes with disabilities or whatever, um, athletics for persons with disabilities, 
that, you know, it was a welcome voice to have an athlete there. And Judy Einbinder tried hard, you know, really hard to ensure that there were athletes involved and engaged in bringing that message. And, um, and it finally stuck with me. <laughs> I kept coming back because, you know, you had, you know, you invest time, right? And, and um, sweat equity and stuff, and you want to see it. You want to see the shift happen. Well, I was also active on the Athletes Advisory Council, which is a fairly powerful group within USA Track and Field. Um, but it, um, one year I ran for office um, to be one of the officers of the Athletes Advisory Council. And um, I did get a good bit of support, but not enough to, to actually be um, elected. So the, the council officers are made up of um, the different sport uh, track disciplines, track and field disciplines. And then there are some at-large positions. So I was running for one of the at-large positions. So, I mean, I think the athletes, you know, there were a few of them who were supportive, but most of them didn't really care or want me there or think that Paralympic athletes should be there. Because it's an able-bodied organization, right? Yeah. And, and they're thinking, oh, what is this woman in a wheelchair going to do? And how is she going to upend our, our organization? What was your strategy? Because you, I mean, you, you've approached racing in such a strategic way, a strategic and scientific way. Did you apply that same kind of strategy to, to, to you know, to trying to figure out a way to create change and, and to open the door for people with disabilities? I, yeah, I, I tried whenever um, track and, USA Track and Field has an annual conference and that's where all of the work is done. So yeah, I mean, you have to do work leading up to it in order to have things ready to be voted on and, and so forth at the convention. So every year when I would learn what um, city it was gonna be hosted in, I would try, I would reach out to people that I knew from, that, from those cities or areas to try to get them to come to the conference, you know, because we needed, you know, we needed the visibility. We needed to look like there were more people than just me that cared. So that was one of the things that I did. Another thing was um, working to get exhibition events on the USA track and field national, like their national championships um, onto the um, program. So, yeah. And the same thing about the visibility, right? To get a demonstration event where people can see what's going on as opposed to thinking that it's something yeah. different, that it's about sport. It's not about like rehab and that yes. kind of thing. Yep. Yeah, so to expose those athletes and, you know, the leaders, you know, all, all the folks to Paralympic and athletes with disabilities. So we were successful in getting some events on the, on the national program. And we kind of rotated them, if I remember right, um, because um, the Associ Association of Blind Athletes, CP, ISRA, so the Association of Athletes with Cerebral Palsy and Special Olympics and Wheelchair Sports USA, all had representation on this committee of athletes of athletes with disabilities. So we would have our athletes, um, you know, each year we would kind of rotate which, which disciplines were on the program. How did that work? How successful was it to be able to, how, what, what was the impression that came from the demonstration of us? I, I think it was, so I think it was most, positive when the blind athletes ran and when the amputees ran, if I remember right. I mean, yeah, we had wheelchair athletes compete um, when the championships were in um, Knoxville, Tennessee at the University of Tennessee and um, had a hard time getting a really strong field out there, which you know, I was frustrated with, right? Because why don't, why don't Wheelchair Sports USA or Athletics USA understand and commit to this? Um, but from their perspective, you know, the athletes asking them to go to a meet that's not on their, you know, on their competition schedule, that's not really gonna <laughs> necessarily help them in, their, you know, in their preparation for whatever 
major competitions they had. I mean, they, they couldn't justify it. So I had to reach out to people that I knew and convince them to do it. So most of them were from that Southeast region. So they you know, could get there fairly easily. So. That's the challenge, isn't it? Trying to find the way to move the needle yeah. and, and, and selling it both up, upstream and downstream kind of like within the committee, but then also selling it to, to your fellow racers and getting right. everybody on board. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the challenge of, of being in, in that kind of a position and helping to, helping to define the sport, isn't it? Is, yeah. is, that, is that what led you? So, so you were a USA track and field uh, on the athletes commission. Then eventually you were you were on the the governing board for the International Paralympic Committee. I mean, Blaze Sports was involved there as well. I mean, so so you you had sort of the Atlanta, if, if I'm getting it correctly. So you've got you had Atlanta, then Blaze Sports. So Atlanta with the Paralympic Games in '96, yeah. then then into Blaze Sports. What was your role with Blaze Sports? Um, so I was the um... Director of Policy and Global Engagement. So policy, primarily meaning domestic policy here in the US to try to, um, uh, and I worked on some initiatives here, you know, with Congress and the federal agencies to Im increase <laughs> and improve. Um, for instance, the, um, the physical education and, um, the, the um, sorry, the physical activity guidelines did not include guidelines for people with disabilities. So that was something that we advocated for, and um, you know, through through oral testimony and written testimony to encourage the yeah the federal agencies to do that, and they did, and they had an expert on their panel too, who was an expert in this area. It's Jim, Dr. Jim Rimmer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, who we know through the um, U.S. Physical Activity and Disability Center for Physical Activity and Disability and Health. I'm butchering the name. I apologize. <laughs> but you know, policy people and supporting um, where we could and where we had the opportunity, um, ch a change in policy, right, for the better. And a lot of people shy away from the political side of the games of the movement of the issue, but you you jumped right into that. Is that something that appealed to you as a person or was it, this is where the job needs to be done? I think it's initially was, this is where the job needs to be done or where I can have the most impact. Um, and somewhere along the way, I mean, I worked here in Washington for almost nine years as a government affairs professional right. inside a, a, a lobbying firm. So I learned a lot about how you can influence policy and change policy and through legislation and, and other things at the federal agencies. It's a long, you know, you have to have a lot of patience and persistence. And that kind of fits my personality. So I guess maybe, I don't know. <laughs> well, patience and persistence and make a lot of friends, right? I mean, you, you're yeah. constantly, I mean, for, for lack of a better term, you're constantly selling. Yeah. To, you know, and, and trying to convince people right. to see things in a little bit different light. Mm -hmm. and, and I'd imagine that that's something that, 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 that appeals to you, that that's, that's a challenge that, probably keeps you, keeps the wheels turning. Is, is, is that the case? And, and if so, uh, you know, how, how, how do you, how do you see how change works? I guess is the, is the big question. I, um, I, I think, I mean, I, I, I guess that's the case, right? I'm drawn to it. I, I, I seem to like it. I want to be in the middle of it. Um, but I don't want a lot of hoopla and, you know, I don't, don't draw a lot of attention. Just let's, let's make this happen and see the change happen. And as you know, it's, there are so many people, right. Who are working in the same direction 
that we are um, in terms of chipping away at um, changing attitudes and chipping away at those stereotypes. And, and, and we, if we look at the Paralympic movement, moving the needle sometimes, you know, is painstaking, right? It takes, a, it takes a lot of time and effort and nothing happens or there's only a little movement. And then all of a sudden things open in a way that, you know, you, you expected to happen a lot earlier, <laughs> but didn't. And now, now that it has, it's wonderful. And you're looking for the next, right? The next metric that you need to meet. I think one of the things that I've um, appreciated working for the federal government at the State Department is that there are, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful thing there. The resources, the, the human capital, the human resources that you have, you know, and, and the amount of people that I get to educate about disability and why it's important to our foreign policy and how it can help us be better diplomats and all those things is something that I love doing. Um, and I think it's really important because they're the ones who are going to make the change, right? Collectively, you know, as as a, as the diplomatic core of the U.S., um, for example. And it's, and it's part of the game, right? I mean, it's part of the game of of getting of of trying to present your agenda to to the proper people to get it moved. I mean, I, I might well be speaking, you know, from having watched West Wing. Uh, but, but, but in some ways it is, it is part of that game, right? Of, of, and, and, and I think it's part of what we're up against as people with disabilities in that oftentimes people aren't, it, it's sort of in some ways what you were talking about, like back in 1979 of like, well, you're, you're fine. You know, you, you don't need anything more. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that that's that that seems like that's the that's the driving issue. Is that the issue that that drives you? That we've got to keep moving it forward. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's and 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 it's it's a beautiful thing to realize how far we've come in forty years. For me, it's been a little more than forty years that I've had had my disability. And the change is has is transformational. It's just unbelievable how much things have changed since that first day that I sat in a wheelchair till today. And, and yet I get to work with people with disabilities, leaders in the disability movement from countries where they're just starting out. You know, they're back where we were 30, 40, 50 years ago. And they're feeling so frustrated, like nothing's changing and where to start and how do they get anybody to pay attention. You know, and, and the neat thing is we have kind of a blueprint. You know, it's not gonna work exactly the same way, but we know what worked and what didn't work. So it's really, you know, it's neat. It's fun to be able to share that expertise kind of like, I mean, I, and I think the, the Paralympic movement and especially wheelchair sports, it wasn't just Illinois. I felt, I mean, I think we felt that way about sharing information and resources because other people were willing to do it. You know, they were so generous. All the top athletes at that time were willing to share, you know, and, and help bring people along in the sport who were coming on. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's just, it, to me, it feels like part of the, it's part of the disability family that we have this shared experience. Um, and, you know, there's, there are so many challenges. Let's, let's help each other make, the most of it and get the most out of it um, because we get to do that. So. And, and you, I mean, you talk about that you at the State Department have a bit of a blueprint to help more developing countries, to help, help foreign countries, but you've lived that blueprint. I mean, like <laughs> you, I mean, from 1979 until now, and to see the collective, the collective, uh, you know, action, you know, whether it's People collaborating on how to how to build a better wheelchair mm -hmm. on on people who are actually because I mean back in the day it was like it was like you were building hot rods kind of thing I mean it's like people right. in their garage well if we lop this off and and weld this on and we can we can make it work and and 
and it's really it's really cool to see some of this stuff like on Facebook where some of these like John Brewers put put together a bunch of photos of old races and I'm like wow that that looks like such a cool community yeah and, uh, you have a you have another fan a, a former former racer as well Sherry Blowett who said so thankful for your groundbreaking work and yeah thank you Love you, Sherry. <laughs> yeah, thank you for tuning in, Sherry. Both Sherry and Corey. But uh, but yeah, I mean, we're we'll have to we'll have to get you out soon. But but um, what are you looking for in the future? What are what are kind of the next steps for you, or the next hope and the next passion? Because it's not necessarily just a job. I mean, it seems like yeah. it is a visceral part of who you are. Right. You know, I, I'm not sure. I love what I'm doing now because <laughs> there's so much possibility. Um, so um, while I do that, I'm going to continue to think about, because the, if you think about the Paralympic movement, is at a, it's at such a really exciting juncture. Um, and the, I think there's so much opportunity for, for growth um, for people who want to work as professionals in the field, um, and, you know, as commentators, as administrators, anyway, so many things. I, I just would love to be a part of helping build that next structure, infrastructure, um, and what it looks like. Because I think the most important thing is that the people who have the lived experience are leading and contributing and being decision makers and having lots of input. And that's us. It is, and it affects so much more. I mean, we've talked so much about sport, but it's sport, it's community, it's identity, it's, it's employment, right? And, and there are, there's so many different uh, avenues that you, can, that you can pursue. And obviously you are pursuing this internationally. Mm -hmm. as well so 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 what we see here is not necessarily what you're going to see in you know in, in a place in africa or or southeast asia or someplace you know that might not have had quite as many opportunities and so right. it, it's a it, it, what it sounds like and it, it it sounds like it's a global effort is is yeah. that really what you're talking about in terms of the work you're doing the paralympics yeah. the Yes, there's so there's still so much work to do that it feels like, you know, there's I mean, there's no end point. It's you know how can you how can you be impactful in helping um, helping those other folks who are really inching right now, trying to you know trying to get momentum in their countries, and also um, helping build up right emerging leaders um, with disabilities, whether they're in Paralympic sport or in disability rights. And sometimes and oftentimes they're both in developed, you know, they wear both hats in developing countries. So um, helping to make sure that that happens. And actually we have a, a wonderful program at the State Department called the Global Sports Mentoring Program in our sports diplomacy division that brings together emerging leaders with disabilities um, who are selected. They're nominated by the US embassies and they're selected to participate in this program, usually about 16 to 18 of them. And then they come to the US for a month and they get paired up with a mentor organization to strengthen you know, a skill set that they want to strengthen in order to be the best leaders they can be back in their home country. So we actually had a guy named Shams Alam from uh, from India who was who 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 was who was recognized as 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 being the what was it? I'm not going to get it right. He was he was the global leader from that. Yes. Uh, committee. Yep. Yes. Yeah, Shams is yeah, he's fantastic. I'm so glad you got to interview him. Yeah. He was he got up early in in India, <laughs> I think on Thursday morning to be able to, to be able to yeah. talk with us. I think we have a, close to 50 of, of them. So if you want more <laughs> if you want more people if you're ever interested, just tell us. <laughs> We're always interested. This is wonderful. Well, and thank you for thank you for joining us. Thank you for all the all the work that you've done. I mean, both both as an individual, as a board member, as a part of the State Department, and and I mean many other things that I'm not 
recognizing at the moment, but uh, but thanks for all the work that you've done and how you've changed people's lives and brought people into the into the light in a lot of ways too. Well, thank you. Let me thank you, Chris, for all the work that you do. It's such important work. I love the commentating. Everybody needs to tune in and watch the Paralympic coverage um, of the Tokyo Paralympic Games because you do a fantastic job. And I also want to thank so many mentors and people who supported and buoyed me and showed me the way. Um, my coaches, my um, mentors, I've mentioned some, some of them on, on the call tonight. But anyway, I'll just leave it there because I don't want to miss anybody. No, no, exactly. But but they know who they are. Well, well, they, they know who they are and 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 maybe maybe think about that and drop somebody an email as well. Because it, it, I mean, I, I constantly think that we know who inspires us, mm -hmm. but we don't know who we inspire. Yeah. And, and and it's an interesting thing. And I think one of I did I was doing something not too long ago where I was I was kind of doing some uh, doing my mem my memoir and doing a video with people who had been influential in my life. And I wow. reached back and found the guy who had been my nurse at the hospital. And this is 30 years after the fact. And, and he was, he was absolutely spectacular. Jim Linehan, spectacular. I mean, just, just for me, for my family guided us through when we didn't know anything. Right. But the thing is he finishes and then he turns to the next person who's just arrived. And, yeah. and I don't think he really knew just how much he affected me and my family. And so uh, those, those mentors are so, are so important, but also, you know, it, it's amazing how far that, that thank you for what you've done. Cause there are probably a lot of your mentors who look at what you've done and gone, Oh, Anne is so amazing. And you're like, Yes, but that's because you helped me along yeah. the way. Yeah, that's right. I love that. I love that you wrote them notes. I'm going to take that on. <laughs> it's an interesting, I've tried to, and I'm sure I've missed many along the way, but, but trying to find those people because, yes, we know who is so important in our lives, but we just don't know. They don't know how important they were to us. So. Yeah. So it's really important as, as we move forward. But and thank you so much. Continue to do the great work. I look forward now that we're hopefully emerging from from our quarantine that uh, that I hope to see you you in person somewhere again. And thank you very much. And we'll keep telling the story. We'll keep pushing it. I appreciate it. Excellent. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for joining us. If you didn't get a chance to see the whole thing, it will be archived on the One Revolution page. So you can watch the full conversation on the One Revolution page on Facebook. You also will be able to see this as an edited, I mean, only slightly edited uh, podcast. And it'll be on YouTube, so you can watch it. It'll be on Spotify. It'll be on Apple, all the usual suspects. The greatest gift that you can give us is to tell your friends about what we're doing. I hope that we're doing some important stuff here, and we'd love to see a greater crowd. So tell your friends. Like us, follow us, and we will look forward to seeing you next Wednesday. Thanks again, Anne. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.